On November 15th of 1978, skeletonized and clothed human remains were found near a logging road off of Amherst Street here in Granby. We now know who Granby Girl is. Patricia Ann Tucker. Welcome back to Missing. I am Tim here today with Lance. Lance, how's it going today? I'm doing fantastic today, Tim, mostly because we have a couple of great guests on. One is a recurring guest who always brings information to the table that's useful to us. It's Lou Barry, former police chief, and he's joining us because the identity of a young woman who was previously unidentified for decades is finally known. But before we get to that, what I would like to know now is how you are. Thank you, Lance. I am doing great. Yeah, I am excited to introduce this conversation as well. Granby Girl was the name of a Jane Doe that was found in Granby, Massachusetts on November 15th, 1978. Her name is now again Patricia Ann Tucker. She has previously gone by Patricia Coleman, Patricia Heckman, and Patricia Dale. So right off the top here, if anyone has known of Patricia... Coleman, Heckman, Dale, or Tucker, please contact the Granby Police Department. They'd like to speak with you. In addition, Patricia was married at the time, which we're going to go into in this conversation, but she was married at the time of her disappearance to a man named Gerald Coleman. And if anyone's got any information about Gerald Coleman, the Granby Police would like to speak with you. In addition to Lou Barry in this conversation, we are joined by Lisa Benz. Lisa is affiliated with DNA Angels, which is a really cool organization. You can find out more about what they do at DNA, and it's the rest of the word of angels. The A in DNA is combined with the A in angels for that URL. And Lisa's sister is married to the son of Patricia Tucker. His name is Matt. I spoke with him yesterday. Great guy. We're going to try to have him on the podcast soon. DNA Angels is not to be confused with Othram Labs, which had a big part of making the identification of Granby Girl. Well, all of that information, Tim, is a bit of a puzzle to put together, but it's not a difficult puzzle to put together. Once you hear this conversation, there are pieces of a puzzle that came together unrelated or related. And Lou is related to the town of Granby because he was the police chief there for a while. He was not the police chief at the time of Patricia Tucker's murder. However, he did start there shortly thereafter. I think he says like nine years after, but it's always been a staple in the heart of Granby. They've always looked at Granby girl as this dark moment in their history that they finally get to put a right to. This is a result that's happened through multiple different avenues, like you said, DNA Angels, Lisa, Lou, the Granby Police, Othram, family members, and finally this person who was previously known as Granby Girl, unknown on her grave marker, will finally have a name. And then you can move into the investigation in order to figure out who perpetrated her murder. This is kind of a complicated mystery, and Lou puts it very well in this conversation. He says that he's usually looking for a missing person 
with his work with private investigations for the missing. But this is kind of the opposite, where you're searching for information about this person who was found and you don't have the identity at this point. So it, it's definitely interesting. And I want to throw out this phone number. If anyone's got any information about Patricia Tucker, about Gerald Coleman, please call the Granby police at 413-467-9222. And Tim, for any of the listeners who would like to enjoy this episode and piece all of these puzzle pieces together without the ads interrupting their listening experience, where can they find this episode and all the other episodes that we got going on? Listeners can now subscribe to Missing Premium right there in their Apple Podcasts app. It's $4.99 a month. You can get ad-free listening. You get our weekly bonus show, and you also get some early releases. And don't worry, if you're not an Apple user, you can go to missing.supportingcast.fm and sign up for the same product there. And furthermore, if one were to be interested in following us on social media, I'm sure there's an easy answer to that. There is. You can follow us at Missing CSM. Thanks a lot for listening, everybody. We're going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back with Lou and Lisa. And we're going to play a quick clip from the March 5th, 2023 press conference. And first assistant district attorney for the Northwestern DA's office, Steve Gagney, speaks during this conference. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community and of values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live. Welcome to the podcast, Lisa and Lou. How are you both doing today? Great. I'm well. Thank you. Oh, thank you for joining us. Uh, I don't know how many people need to be introduced to Lou, but Lou, if you could just give folks out there a refresher on who you are and what you do, and then Lisa, we can transition to you. But uh, I personally love the fact that we get to have this conversation with you. It has like a hopeful quality to it. My name is Lisa Benz, and I'm actually uh, Patricia's son, 
Matt. We call him Matt, not Matthew. Um, I'm his sister-in-law. He's married to my sister. I'm the one who actually a couple of years ago convinced him to do his DNA through Ancestry. And so we kind of started on this journey a couple of years ago trying to find his mom. Uh, but we kept running into dead ends until about three or four weeks ago. Wow. Can you tell us about those dead ends? Well, basically, you know, I was doing it all through Ancestry and, uh, you know, we could find marriage uh, certificates. We could find, you know, her birth records. Uh, We could find some newspaper articles and stuff. But then it was just like all of a sudden there was no paper trail. It ended. We didn't have anywhere else to go. And uh, Lou, can you tell us a little bit about your background? I was a police officer for 35 years. I was uh, chief of police in Granby for 24 of those. Prior to that, I was down on the Cape for 11 years. And I moved up to Granby to uh, accept the chief of police position here. And relative to this case, one of the first things I did was go through the files and look at, you know, what we had for, for cold cases or old cases. I shouldn't necessarily say cold. And one of the most striking was um, that of what has been known known or who has been known to be called Granby Girl, uh, which was uh, an unidentified um, deceased female subject of a homicide who had been found um, in a wooded area off one of our roads uh, back in 1978. Um, and there was no identification at all or identifiable features. I know you have a passion for cold cases. I guess I'd like to know what that was like for you entering that that station and uh, becoming chief when this case had had happened in the past. Realistically, at the time, I cold cases were not really something I was involved in at all. Um, however, this this particular case struck me in that there was just nothing um, th- that was able to identify her, and. Perhaps this is part of the reason why I later, after my retirement, got involved in cold cases uh, through private investigations for the missing um, because of, uh, uh, you know, a a case like this where knowing there's family members out there that just needed closure somehow. And we, you know, off and on worked on the case, um, even though we really had very little to go on. The most identifiable thing was a shirt that was left at, uh, at the scene with a design of a swan on it. Um, and that was kind of the most recognizable thing that we had that we were hoping someday someone would identify. Of course, th- that was many years ago prior to DNA and uh, and all that, um, which is relatively recent uh, innovation. But so, th- like I said, off and on, we looked at the case throughout the years and it, it was never forgotten. I can, I can tell you that, but we really had nothing to go on until they decided to do an exhumation back a year and a half or so ago, I think. And um, through that, indirectly got some DNA and were able to identify, um, I believe, a niece, Patricia's niece. And through Patricia's niece, identified Patricia's son, Matthew. And um, that was about, I want to say, six weeks ago. I got a phone call there in supper one night and said, hey, chief, we identified her. We know who she is, and which was uh, yeah, just unbelievable news. And things move fast after that. Um, that you know, the the scientific part is one part of the investigation, uh, and then it was down to good old fashioned police work. And that um, I can't say enough about the efforts put forth by 
District Attorney Sullivan's office out of the Northwest District Attorney's office. Um, the state police troopers led by Captain Cahill out of the detective unit there and Grammy's detectives, uh, Detective White, Detective Carpenter, uh, Chief O'Grady, certainly, and, and Lieutenant Pooler are all put in hours and hours now doing the paper trail to put all these pieces together and, and uh, reach where we are today. I love the fact that you said it was the scientific method and then it was old-fashioned police work. And I love that those two things are being spoken about in the same sentence now, that the scientific method is meeting old-fashioned police work, working together 44 years later, and you have a solve that had nothing, had some you know indications of like developments throughout the years, but all of a sudden everything's moving so fast because those two elements are coming together. And I really want to talk about all of that. But we talk about, surprising, Lou, we talk about you a lot on the show when when you're not around in, in a really positive light. We always say that you were, you know, you're a lifelong law enforcement guy, police chief of Granby, but we never actually talk about Granby. Can you just tell our listeners what Granby's like and then we can get into the investigation? Like, what was that like as a town back then and how has it changed? Back when this incident happened in 78, I wasn't here. I moved up eight, nine years later, rather. Uh, the town uh, was a rural farming type community for many, many years. And then back in the um, early 40s, Westover Air Force Base was was constructed and led to a big influx of population of people from all over the country, uh, Air Force related. Uh, so the town grew kind of rapidly at that point. And then when Westover became a reserve base, it kind of took the opposite turn and, and population leveled off and actually dropped for a little bit. And now it's more of a suburban uh, community, still has that rural small town feeling, but it's in very close proximity to Springfield is 15 minutes away, which was just uh, unfortunately named the most dangerous city in Massachusetts. <laughs> Chicopee, we bordered to the south along with Ludlow, both cities. Holyoke is right across uh, the river on the other side of South Hadley. Um, and then to our north is Amherst with the University of Massachusetts. Um, so it's it's kind of a small, rural, still-type suburban community surrounded by larger um, cities and, and communities. Um and going back to the late 70s, uh, it was even more rural than it is now. And in the area that uh, Patricia was ultimately found um, at that point was undeveloped. It was just wooded area. Now there's houses uh, there and everything. But like I said, it's still a small town. And I think that's evidenced by the interest in this case. Um, the entire community is invested in Patricia. And I, I don't know how aware everyone is, but originally her, her, grave was marked with a simple white cross. That was it. And one of our cemetery commissioners, uh, a gentleman by the name of uh, Tony Reagan, who was, a, who was a fantastic citizen of our town, was a cemetery commissioner. And he took it upon himself to decide, you know, this isn't right. She needs a marker. He publicized the fact that, you know, we're going to try and raise money. And I, I think a day later, they had the funds. Uh, one businessman in particular who, who didn't want to be known wrote a check and there's been a marker on her grave. Uh, unfortunately, it said unknown uh, up until now. <laughs> Again, the type of community that, that it is, we've started a fundraiser to buy a new stone and put her name on that stone. Um, and I can tell you right now, less than 30 hours afterwards, we are well on our way to reaching that goal. 
Fantastic. Lisa, I, I would like to know from you what it was like looking into Patricia's disappearance. Before she was identified, she was a missing person, and, and that was something that you were obviously aware of. So what did you go about, or how did you go about um, trying to work on Patricia's disappearance? Well, like I said, Matt did his DNA. So, of course, in Ancestry, you get to see the matches, you know, of who he matches with. He did have some cousins on her side that he matched with. Um, I started building out the tree. You know, I'm just going to say this. We are a very close-knit family. When he said, can you find my mom, I just felt that sick feeling because he wanted to know so bad what happened to his mother. Being five years old and being left and never seeing your mother again, I'm sure that, you know, he felt abandoned. He didn't understand why. Then he was being shuffled from one location to another. That curiosity has always been in the back of his mind. He's always, you know, kind of talked about her. He has showed her the baby book and the things that she left for him. But it was just, you know, this feeling of, I need to find her. You know, I think he had reconciled in his head that there was a possibility that she wasn't alive, but we couldn't find proof of that. You know, we couldn't find anything in any of the online records to show yes or no. So we kind of put it on hold for a little while. And then I remember the day I got the phone call. He called me and he said, hey, I think we can stop looking for mom. And my heart fell. <laughs> I was like, why? And he's like, well, I got home from work today and there were two police officers that pulled up and talked to me and asked me to contact a, a detective in Massachusetts. And he said, I think my mom's a Jane Doe. And I mean, just the the hurt, you know, it, it was real. But I think this weekend as he drove up there, I think reality started sitting in more. And he FaceTimed me when he got to the grave. And I think that's when it hit him the hardest. What was it like when, I understand he was left um, as, a, as a five-year-old. Can, can you take us through that a little bit? And, and where was this? He's five. If you have children of your own, you know, I think of my little grandson that's five today. And I think about him and I think about, you know, him being left somewhere, he would probably, you know, just panic if he couldn't find his mother. I'm I'm not going to try to put words in Matt's mouth of how he felt, but I can only imagine, you know, abandonment. You know, where's my mom? Why is my mom not coming back for me? Uh, why am I going to all these strange places and I don't know anyone? I'm sure that somewhere in the back of his mind, he was probably scared out of his mind. You know, his father picked him up and, you know, he's he's had to deal with this for a long time. I think he shut a lot of it off. And then, you know, when he got that phone call, I think, as he told me the day after, he said, I didn't sleep a wink last night because every time I closed my eyes, it was just flashbacks. And, you know, I know people think, well, he's five years old. How can he remember this? But, you know, if you think about it, when you go through something of this nature, 
your mind takes a snapshot because I can even tell you being eight years old, I remember my grandfather uh, dying and I remember, you know, back then parents didn't think about what kind of trauma this was going to, you know, happen to a kid. But I can see in my mind the exact spot, the tree that hit him. I remember his glasses on the ground and I remember the blood that is instilled in my mind. So I'm sure in Matt's mind, he has a lot of whatever happened that day or the day before it's, it's a memory and it's like a snapshot in his brain and all of those memories are now coming forward. So he's having to, you know, kind of process this all over again. The day of the press conference I kind of use the analogy of he went into a room and a dump truck was dumped in his lap, you know, because all of this information was, you know, just coming at him and only having a short period of time to process that and then rock, walk into a room with, you know, reporters and everything. I don't know how he held it together, but I commend him for that because I think I would have lost it. Do you know when Patricia was was reported as being missing? Well, I can tell you that um, just from Matt, um, that his grandparents did report her missing. They went, I believe they went to the FBI, but, you know, back then and that time, I don't know, was that you know, a high priority if an adult went missing. I don't know. I don't think things back then are the same as the way things are today when someone goes missing. I guess Lou can answer whether or not they actually have a paper trail or anything of that nature to show. We know that her husband at the time did not report her missing, which is rather telling in itself. My understanding, and again, I, I of course, am not involved directly in the investigation, so I'm just picking up uh, bits and pieces from the detectives in the DA's office and everything, but um, her parents re did report her missing to the FBI a couple years later, I believe, uh, in New Jersey. But, you know, this is way back before technology is what it is today. And, and it was very little, since we had very little at this end to go on, uh, except clothing, um, there's really a difficult match up there. If you, if you know what I mean, that was before DNA was put into CODIS and, um, um, you know, NamUs was, was there, but in through the years, we tried to match up with NamUs missing persons that fit the description and the age and, and all that, but, uh, we're never able to make that connection. So I, I do under, I do know that right now they are working with the FBI to try and backtrack and find out, you know, what was reported, what information they had and, and et cetera. But, I don't know exactly what, what that information is at this point. Well, you uh, brought up the husband, so we might as well transition into this individual. Uh, Patricia has been revealed to be Patricia um, Tucker, but she went as Patricia Coleman at one time, I believe at the time of her murder, which leads us to Gerald Coleman, her husband, who you mentioned, who never reported her missing. Can you t tell us a little bit about him? Sure. He, she had married Coleman sometime, I think it was in 1977, perhaps. They had actually purchased a home down in East Hampton, Connecticut. In August of um, 78, showed up um, in Chicopee, Mass., um, the town just south of us here. And um, 
if I get if I have this correct, they were inquiring about perhaps a renting an apartment and requested that Matt, who was five at the time, be left there for this woman by the name of Laura Holmes to babysit while they took care of some unfinished business. On August 10th, I believe they got a call and from Patricia saying they, they had been delayed, but they were en route to pick up Matthew. And that's the last time that we are aware of that Patricia was ever heard from. So we're assuming that's right around when something tragic happened to her. She had dropped him off at the neighbor's place and then... They, they dropped him off with Holmes, yes. Right, um, right, right. Okay. And then she said she was going to go back. And she said she'd be back to get him. And she called and said, you know, we got tied up, but we're coming. And, and that was the end of that. Gerald Coleman, who who she was married to, then kind of dropped off the map until the 90s when he showed up in Westfield and was arrested um, on a rape charge. Um, he subsequently went to prison and died in prison in 1996, uh, excuse me. And obviously they're, they're very, very interested in speaking to anyone who knew Patricia or Coleman during that time period, uh, or at any point, uh, actually, because they obviously like to track, you know, where his whereabouts, what his whereabouts were, et cetera, et cetera. Right. And at different points, she she was married to other uh, men and she went by Patricia Heckman and Patricia Dale as well. So, yes, you know, I, I th think that can sometimes complicate the people who knew her. You know, I was talking to someone yesterday about this. How interesting that back then, if you lost touch with someone, you lost touch with them. That was it. Unless you happen to, you know, have a mutual acquaintance or something. Now with Facebook, you can reconnect back to people that you went to high school with, you know, 30, 40 years ago. So times have certainly changed a lot in that, in that regard. But so that, and I'm sure is one of the difficulties they've had in, in recreating her past was, you know, the different names. And of course, you know, at the beginning, we didn't even know what her, what her name was or anything, but you know, I, I just think it's amazing the, the technology 44 years later that, this case has been able to be closed. And I, I think it should really give hope to people who have um, either missing persons or, um, you know, in this case, uh, you know, unidentified that, that, you know, hope is not lost. It's, it's still out there. And, you know, this is kind of, you know, the work I do for private investigations for the missing, obviously looking for missing persons. And this case is kind of the opposite. You know, usually the missing person you take from the time they go missing, where are they now? And in this case, it's from the time she was located and trying to go backwards. So it's it's a lot different than, I mean, the principles are the same, but the, the circumstances are entirely different um, in this particular case. And we'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsors. Thanks to our sponsors. And now we're back to the program. Lisa, can you tell us a little bit about Patricia? Who who was she? What what was she like? If as much as you know. Well, I never met her. <laughs> I'm going to say this: she had to have been a loving mother because to have a detailed baby book the way he has up until he's five years old, she had to be a loving, attentive mother. It, otherwise, you know, he wouldn't have anything. And even today, a lot of people do their first child, and then that second and third child, they kind of get left by the wayside and, you know, have as many detailed baby books. But I have to say that, you know, through all of this, 
I am totally convinced that she had to have been a very loving mother. And at the end of the day, she lost her life, but she saved her sons. Tim, I, I might add, um, I know in speaking to the detectives that they, like I said, they have you know done some backtracking and spoken to former neighbors um, when Matthew was a young child. And they all say the same thing, that Patricia was an unbelievable mother and everybody liked her and uh, she was fantastic with the kids and uh, Coleman, not so much. Um, they they didn't have much good to say about him, um, but she was very well thought of by the people that knew her, both as an individual and as a, as a parent. That's nice to know. And uh, she had two sons. Is that is that correct? She does. Do you think that she knew she was in physical danger at the time that she dropped off Matt? We can speculate. It's all we can do. You know. Tell me about DNA Angels, Lisa. So DNA Angels is a nonprofit organization that was formed back in 2019 by a lady, Laura Olmstead. She took a DNA test and discovered that the person she thought was her biological father was not. So she wanted to take what she had found, you know, regarding herself and turn that around and do good. So basically... She started this nonprofit with a couple of other girls, started for free. We locate your birth parents. You, We do have a requirement that you take a test with Ancestry, and we will color code your matches, divide them out between your paternal and your uh, maternal side, and then we will build you a tree, and we will go dig any information we can possibly find to get you your truth, because we feel like everyone has the right to know. You have the right to your medical history. You have the right to know who your parents are. And so we've done, we do adoptees, donor conceived, and people who, what we term as not parent expected, uh, MPEs. And to date, uh, we're close to 4,000 families that we have located. It doesn't always turn out the way you want it to, uh, but at least now you know. Very cool. And um, where does that drive come from in you, that uh, that interest in, in this angle? Well, uh, so basically the way I got connected with DNA Angels was they first contacted my mother and said that they had a gentleman that was adopted and that he was matching up to our side of the family. So, you know, the curiosity became, um, I went to school to be a paralegal. Uh, my favorite class was the research class, you know, for it. Uh, so it kind of intrigued me at that point. Uh, so we all took our DNA. Uh, to help this young man discover who his family was. And so we all took our DNA test, put it out there, and uh, we have located his father. Uh, he is deceased. He was on my mother's side. He was a cousin to my mother. We've narrowed it down to two women that could be possible mothers. But, you know, some people are afraid to do their DNA. Uh, you know, they don't want it out there, but, you know, it's kind of like this. There's nothing to be afraid of. If you're the one who tells the secret, then you're the one who tells the secret. But DNA is not going to lie. And we just feel that everybody has the right to know. Can you tell me a little bit about the process uh, that Othram went through to uh, to help identify Patricia? I know the the DNA sample was sent to Othram um they do what's known as uh, genomic sequencing and, um, uh, 
you know, it's not my field. <laughs> um, uh, but as far as I'm concerned, Othram is the best there is out there from, from experience that I've had with other cases. Um, and they uh, determined that um, I believe a niece was related to Patricia. And then from there, it's just a matter of narrowing down who that might be. And, and they confirmed it was Matt being her son. And um, like I said, from there, it's just it's just police work after that. Lou, you mentioned old-fashioned detective work um, was was done on this case in combination with the DNA. What detective work was done on this, and what was your involvement? I can't, again, speak for everything that they, and by they, I mean the state police detectives and our local detectives did, um, obviously. But my contact was primarily through the detective on, on my former department, who I hired years ago. Through the work I do with PI for the Missing, I obviously do a lot of research online stuff, archival information and help them out a little bit with that. Uh, you know, I found Coleman's old high school picture. I found a wedding announcement from that. They, um, every little bit of information leads to other information. Um, so I, you know, my involvement was, was really minimal. They did, they did the, the heavy lifting, no question about that, but locating people, talking to people, trying to piece together history going back 44 years. Um, you know, it's a, it's a paper trail and it's talking to people and it's asking the right questions and following up on things. And without knowing specifically what they did, I, I can't really say, but I know there was a lot of legwork done and, and I know a lot of searching of records and criminal records and, and such, because again, back then there was no central repository for a lot of this information, you know, uh, back in those late 70s, computers were not what they are today by any means. So a lot of this information isn't in a computer. It's in, in storage somewhere if it still exists. So, um, you know, s- simple things like trying to track down Laura Holmes. You know, where does she, who is she? Where does she live? What's her background? Where What's her date of birth? Where is she now? It's, it can be very time consuming. And there's a lot of people like that that they, they looked at and talked to and, and pieced together information. The other aspect of this is... Um, with Othram, what they do is truly incredible because DNA is like fingerprints. You can have all the DNA you want, all the fingerprints you want. And if you don't know who that belongs to, it's not going to do you any good. What Othram does is take that DNA and not necessarily identify the individual, but identify individuals that person may be related to through ancestry that had their DNA analyzed and things like that. And then through genomic sequencing, narrow it down to to the person who might be involved, and so it's it's really a a um, a unique service that they perform. I think that them and, and maybe certainly some other labs, but um, uh, it's um, you know, like I said, you can have all the DNA you want if you can't if you don't know who it belongs to, and that person's DNA is not in a database anywhere. It's it's not going to do you any good. And we'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsors. Thanks to our sponsors. And now we're back to the program. Is there anything else about Gerald Coleman that, uh, that, that you're aware of? Are there other, I, I know he had a, a rap sheet, but are there potentially unsolved crimes that, uh, that he's being looked at, uh, for? I don't know. I think at this point, the concentration is on this crime. Um, I'm certain that that at some point will be, seriously considered. However, you know, at this point in time, I think the the concern or the focus is on this particular incident and 
uh, from there, uh, I'm sure they'll progress on to determining if he might be involved in other similar or different types of uh, incidents. You'd mentioned that the headstone for Patricia says unknown. What's the future of that headstone? Actually, I, I talked to Matt about that yesterday, and, and um, he indicated that it would be okay to donate that to our historical society um, because that's been a part of our history for the past 44 years. Um, so with a, you know, with a backstory, it might be something that future generations might be interested in. And I mean, it's not the type of memento, I think, that a family would want to hold on to anyway. So I think that's an appropriate disposition for it. Matt was on board with that. So I'm assuming the rest of the family is also. The good news is there's going to be a stone with her name on it. <laughs> um, right, and, right. And the family's working with an appropriate uh, inscription um, as we speak to have put on that stone once we once we get the funds raised and make it purchased. And um, the plans are to have some type of a dedication ceremony at the convenience of the family when they can get all get up here, anyone who's interested. And- Lisa, I'm curious about something with the work that you do with the DNA Angels. When you started doing that, did you have a perception of how this would affect people and impact their lives when these answers, when these questions were answered? And did that change the more you experienced it? I'm going to say when I started it, no, no idea. You know, um, I tried to put myself in their shoes but after working with DNA Angels, and we have uh, Facebook groups, um, and they're private uh, for these individuals, you know, to talk to. It is amazing to me that rejection is unbelievable. You know, abandonment, lies. Um, it's just Yes. So my whole perspective of putting myself in someone's shoes now and trying to feel that hurt, it's hard. And, you know, it's hard when you give someone their father's name or their mother's name and you give them the information to be able to contact these people. We do give people kind of like a script that they can use. You know, we don't suggest that you call up and say, hey, I'm your daughter or anything of that nature. We, we kind of, you know, slowly move into that. It's, it's hard when you get that, don't ever contact me again. I want nothing to do with you. So that is extremely hard. The grief process that they have to go through, you know, uh, they go through a process when they find out. And then they go through a process again when they're rejected. We have had some great success stories uh, where, you know, fathers and mothers have opened their arms and just thank God that they found each other and that, you know, they had always hoped for that. But we do have some that they don't turn out that way. And it's sad because it's not the child's fault. The child didn't ask to be brought into this world. They didn't ask to be put up for adoption. They didn't ask to be rejected. But yet they're the ones who have to fight that battle. Coincidentally, um, within the past week, through a client, um, I had a very, uh, exactly what she's talking about, an adopted young man who didn't know either of his parents. And um, 
I was fortunately able to locate both his mother and his father within a week. Uh, they're not living together. They haven't seen each other since the baby was before the baby was born. Um, but uh, very difficult for all of them. Uh, the father's deceased, but his his family's still there. Very difficult situation for both the son and the mother, you, you know, trying to reconnect, I guess is the word. Uh, so at this point, I'm still acting as a go-between between the two of them. Uh, they don't know who the other one is at this point. So it's it's a tough situation. It's a very, very tough situation for the for the family members. I can, I can sympathize with that. And uh, is there anything else uh, that either uh, of you would like to say um, for the podcast? My message to families out there in situations like this is keep the faith. As long as somebody's looking and working on the case, there's still hope for it. So, you know, just don't give up. Push the authorities to look into it. It can happen. And this is case in point. 44 years later, it's been hopefully been resolved. And I also say that if you have the opportunity to take a DNA test, take one. Ancestry has them on sale right now for $59. So, you know, invest in that test. Take it. You know, put it out there to where law enforcement can look at your DNA and see that. Uh, there's a, uh, if you don't want to do it on Ancestry, you can take your uh, DNA from Ancestry and upload it to a couple of other sites. Jedmatch is another one. Um, FTDNA is another one so you know put it out there because if you're looking and you hide your DNA if you've taken a DNA test it's not going to do any good they can't find it they're not going to be able you know to to locate you Uh, so you know I encourage people to take a DNA test I encourage them to you know create a tree uh, and make it public you know make these law officers jobs a little bit easier in finding your missing relative 